I am looking out the window at the famous sundial. It's a brilliant red formation of Wingate sandstone. Out the other window, I'm looking across green irrigated fields at the famous climbing cliffs of Indian Creek in southeast Utah. And just 10 miles down the road is the entrance to Canyonlands National Park. Where am I? It's only one place, Dugout Ranch, southeastern Utah, and I'm now speaking with Ms. Heidi Red, the owner and proprietor of the Dugout Ranch. Thank you so much for hosting us, Heidi. Well, thank you, Buzz. Um, I've been on Indian Creek now for over 56 years, and <clears throat> when I first arrived, um, a full different scene than what we have now. Um, we were the only ones in the canyon. Um, when you turned off Highway 191 onto 211, it was a dirt road for 20 miles to the ranch and then on down country also. So through the years, through these 55, 56 years, the enormous change that have taken place where um, if we saw a vehicle coming down the road, which was very rare, we would know who was in that vehicle where now it's more or less a steady stream of cars. So um, the cultural shock, to some degree, to see the canyon so populated um, has been a real um, adjustment. Okay, folks, you got that warm-up. Hold on to your britches. That was brilliant, Heidi. So oftentimes we have discussions with athletes, you know, young people running big routes, we're going behind the scenes now. We're at a famous recreation area, didn't used to be a recreation area, and we're gonna learn a lot more about this place, the people, and we're gonna learn it through Heidi Red, who as she just said, for 56 years has lived here on the Dugout Ranch. And uh, thanks so much, Heidi. You got some stories to tell. This was a dirt road when you used to run, and again, it's called. it was called it is called, I'm sorry, the Indian Creek Cattle Company, and you you did this for over 50 years. That's right, and I <clears throat> owned and operated Indian Creek Cattle Company uh, up until in the uh, late 90s when um, the ranch was fortunate enough to partner with the Nature Conservancy. And I must say that that partnership um, has made it possible so that when I pass on, um, this will always be an undeveloped piece of land and will always be preserved. And um, not only that, the Nature Conservancy has provided the ranch with a um, research center for climate change. And um, what a gift that is not only to this ranch, but ranches and people throughout the world. The more we learn about how our climate is changing and how we can adapt to it, and we've been in the research here for 10 years, and so that's just scratching the surface. And so hopefully what we learn here will um, be of use to future generations. My gosh, well, Heidi, we have hours and hours of conversation here, but we'll keep it a little shorter than that. That's, wow, this is an amazing place, and a truly unique spot. But you and your husband ran cattle here, and that's how you made your living, is running cattle here. 
And I think you told me your lease holdings were 350,000 acres. Did I hear that right? That's correct, um, with BLM forest and state properties. And then at one time, um, before the park was uh, established, Needles District of Canyonlands Park, that was also part of the ranch. And we had a 10-year um, lease on that property to run cattle for 10 years after the park was established. <laughs> so there's people, <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry, I'm chuckling because obviously right across the street here, there's climbers, got their little guidebook open, they're finding this 200-foot crack climb that they came over here from Germany to try to climb. And then down there in Needles, people are going and running these 15-mile routes. But you had 350,000 acres. You know this country quite literally better than anyone alive. Well, uh, probably. <laughs> and, um, you know, it was a cattle operation, like you mentioned, and uh, we would very seldom, the whole time, we would be out um, cowboying, gathering cattle, moving cattle, um, see people. That was a rarity. Um, once in a while we would see, um, it, this was probably in the 80s, we would see a few tour guides come down through, but Basically, it was this outback area. We generate our own power here. Uh, we never had television or telephones up until um, the Internet and satellites. And now we, uh, I don't know if this is a, a plus or a minus, now that we have satellite, we're able to get um, Internet. Wow. Oh. <laughs> It, it, just, it just takes my breath away imagining this. You've told me a few stories about when you and your husband took over the operation here and that year three feet of snow fell, which wasn't making cattle ranching any easier. And, of course, your herds were all up. I mean, they're not sitting here on this nice little um, 10 acres in Pennsylvania. They're on, at that time because the park hadn't been established yet, that was probably more like 400,000 acres or so. And so what did you do when that snow came? Well, we're young people, we're in our 20s, and you know, a lot of times when you're in your 20s, you think you know everything and you can handle everything. But um, it was an odd freak snowstorm that hit southeastern Utah and actually the Four Corners area. They were dropping food to the Navajos on the reservation and hay for their fee their uh, sheep. And um, we had cattle, uh, the 350,000 that we run on are contiguous acres. And so uh, we had cattle on Dark Canyon Plateau, which is um, about 60 miles we had to travel. Well, you, no way you're gonna get a horse from here uh, 60 miles through this deep snow, plus, we're um, at ranch headquarters. We're at uh, 5,300 feet. Uh, Dark Canyon Plateau is at 7,000 feet. So we had quite an elevation change, and had to leave here. And it was a climb all the way, and then uh, up to 8,000 feet. And then we dropped back down onto the plateau, which is 7,000 feet. So leaving here and um, going in and establishing a camp and we always had line camps and one of our line camp of course in the plateau and every fall we would stock these camps with um, hay and range block so we knew once we got in there we could 
throw out some range block and hopefully get the cattle to them. So this long, long trek and uh, getting down in and then spending three days trying to open some gates so they could get to lower country, dropping range block. And even through all that, um, we ended up losing about 350 head that, that winter. And that it was interesting thing, it was, um, I woke up that first morning there and it was Merry Christmas. <laughs> first day at the dugout, the first Christmas at the dugout. So Robert and I um, had many, many interesting uh, adventures. And we were, like I say, we were in our 20s. We had a huge debt of over $675,000 at 10% interest. So we had to figure out a way we were going to come up with $60,000 a year for interest, which was a stretch and a lot of work. <laughs> and that's, uh, that money was 1960s dollars, so that was, yeah. that was a fair chunk of change. That's right, it was. And um, luckily, you know, for young people now, I look at the interest rate at 1% or 2%, I think, whoa, wouldn't we love that? <laughs> so. And you hung on. You had, your two sons were born here. And uh, as you've said a few times, which we're going to get to in this conversation, you have seen some big changes since that time. You and Robert made all your living, uh, well, kind of. I'm gonna, let's just pause for a second. Almost all your living raising cattle, but you quickly realized, not quickly, but at least at some point you realized that you could make money on the side just because of the setting, not just selling beef on the hoof. That's right. It was after Robert and I had um, divorced, and um, he had moved on and I stayed. And um, so I was figuring out, okay, how can I supplement my income here? So I signed up with the um, Moab Film Commission and had several movies filmed here, City Slickers 2, part of City Slickers 2, and Writers of the Purple Sage, but you know, the real money was in commercials. Okay. And it's interesting because you would think, you know, a big movie would bring more money, but it isn't so. And big movies are here long, a longer time, and they have big crews, uh, but their budget is less. So um, I must say that uh, my commercials that came um, afforded me much more uh, sometimes I would, could make $60,000 in two weeks with no overhead, which when you run a ranch, you have hellacious overhead, especially because at the dugout, everyone is housed here. Um, so I have to have housing for my employees and a decent wage. And um, so um, commercials were really great. And I also went into... Um, I contacts with Anderson Ranch, which isn't a ranch, it's an art studio in um, Aspen, Colorado. And they would bring artists and photographers, and uh, they would spend a week here um, filming and whatnot, and that was an income for me. So I was diversifying as much as I could, and not wholly de trying to depend on the cattle and the cattle market, which might be good one year and bad five years. So um, this diversification made a big difference. 
And, of course, this is an audio podcast, but if we had any visuals, you would see why commercials were filmed here and movies were filmed here. It's literally iconic. It's a vision of the Old West. That's right, and especially Marlboro. Marlboro was um, a customer um, that came every year for over 20 years, and sometimes they would come more than once a year. They'd come twice. And um, of all the people I worked with in that industry, Marlboro was excellent. They never, um, they, they could bring 200 horses and you wouldn't know it when they left. Or if they did do any damage, they would immediately um, come down with a crew to reseed and replant. And you never, ever saw a cigarette butt around here. Wow. And uh, rumor has it you had uh, a bit of an affection for the Marlboro man himself. Yes, Darrell Winfield, a very, very charming man and very um, extremely, um, you know, this is one thing about the Marlboro men. <laughs> when they get too old to be the Marlboro man, then they're per, put in charge of the Wrangler crew. So they aren't just let go. And they have the experience to know, okay, this is the shot, this is the setup. And so um, I must say that um, they were very well taken care of. Wow. So, folks, when you're envisioning what the old West, so to speak, looked like, your vision possibly came from here. I mean, this, this is kind of an iconic image of what the West looked like. And it's... Right here, thanks to you and your efforts, which we're going to get to in a second, and the Nature Conservancy, which we're going to talk about, it still does look like this right here. I mean, there's, we're not looking out the window at a row of condominiums. That's right, and <clears throat> that was the um, whole um, purpose for partnering with the Nature Conservancy, and um, it was a, a long process, and um, I must say... Sometimes when you get into a partnership, you are unaware of, okay, what, what is this partnership really going to look like in the end? Um, but I must say uh, my expectations have been met and then some with that organization. Well, that's um, a classic example of evolving economy and use of land, isn't it? Cattle is... Pardon me, but I don't think you ever made a lot of money in cattle. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, of course, TV commercials and so forth. But then when it was time to go to the next level, um, the Nature Conservancy. This is very interesting because, obviously, you could have divided the property. So you had a lot of leases. Some people might not understand that, but that's how most cattle operations work is you lease uh, you know, cow-calf a unit uh, on a public land, but you own some private property, such as your irrigated hay fields, which you cut hay on. Uh, how much private property did the dugout have? We had 7,000 acres, and um, it's important. I mean, you can't... What you can lease from the government is commensurate with your private property. Ah, so, so you, you can't just walk in there and say, right. oh, I, you have to have a property. So let's say a disaster happens, and so you have to be able to have those cattle 
on your private property at some time. So, um, but <laughs> I can tell you that um, leasing BLM Forest Service lands is a real bargain. It is? It is. Mm -hmm. It is a bargain. If I had to go out and buy that number of acres and pay the taxes on it, first of all, to come up with the money to buy it and then pay the taxes on it, um, I'd be hard-pressed. But to be able to lease that from the government, um, and, of course, we um, have to follow those rules and regulations. And so when people balk, I, I am always shocked when I hear cattle people balk about um, the government or leasing land or, I mean, I just can't, I just can't go along with that. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, sure, we have rules and regulations, but they are for the protection of the land. I mean, when the first cattle were brought into this country, they were brought in in such horrendous numbers and uh, there was, until the Taylor Grazing Act, that put a stop to, you know, um, where there should be maybe 1,000 head of cattle. There were 10,000 head of cattle. And then made people responsible by giving them these government leases so that you're responsible for this land. If they come and they see that you're overgrazing, uh, and they tell us how many head we can run on this. Um, anyway, it's... Um, I think it's a godsend to cattle people in the West. And so, like I say, um, to me, it is a real asset to have the government lease these lands to us. And we have to recognize we do not own these lands. We are renting an apartment, more or less. And when they give us a rule and a regulation, for us to uh, put up a fuss or say, oh, we, I should own this, they should, it's ridiculous. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Heidi, thank you very much for that perspective, because as an outsider, that would have been my observation as well. Um, the big government, anti-government, the so-called sagebrush rebellion that took place in Nevada and, and spread to places like this, it is a little odd because the landowners say, oh, government's, you know, hassling us, they're over-regulating us, but the government is us. Right. I mean, you and I are the government, and without the government, they would have nothing. They would be making, you know, inscriptions on the desert varnish and, and eating Indian rice grass without the government. So I appreciate your perspective. Well, I'm uh, somewhat embarrassed when um, my fellow ranchers uh, put up that fuss, frankly. Mm -hmm. well, I can see why. So let's keep going with this. Um, 7,000 acres. You have two sons. You're divorced. Um, what's going to happen, right? This is the question that comes up so many, many times. And the Nature Conservancy is kind of good at this. You know, this is part of what they do. They understand your issues. And they're definitely not the government. They're definitely not private enterprise. They're somewhere in between. They're a nonprofit, and so they will hold land in a conservation easement for kind of the public good, but they manage it themselves. So it's this interesting in-between status. Well, that's right. And, and uh, when they purchased the ranch, then uh, they leased back to me 
I was able to own my own cattle and had the permits in my name. And so, um, but I paid them a fee for this. It wasn't like um, they just allowed me to do this. And so up until I retired, um, then I owned the cattle and all my business. And um, then when I retired, uh, because we were going, we had started already in the research business before I retired. And um, so when I retired, then they purchased my herd and they hired my son, he's an employee, and, and his wife. And so <clears throat> they run the operation and they also oversee the research center. And um, we have researchers coming from all over. And um, so it is, uh, and it's really quite nice in that the research center is not a development. It is the researchers stay in tents. They do have uh, a place they where they can get in and cook and everything. But when they come, they are out doing research. They aren't, you know, being housed in anything fancy. They're not sitting in an office cubicle. They're in. These are field people. That's right. That's right. And. Um, we have also started um, uh, one of the most interesting projects to me. We've started um, with my son. Uh, he's started this project um, with the Criollo cattle. Uh, and in a research center um, in New Mexico, they have been studying these Criollo cattle for quite some time. And these are cattle that were brought over by the Spanish. They're smaller than the British breed. They have smaller hooves. They're smaller animal altogether and they uh, will graze further from uh, water holes, and they will browse. So they will, their variety of food, or what they'll eat and graze on, is greater than the English breed. So the study we have with them is they have uh, radio collars on them. So we track them throughout the year, so we know exactly what they're doing. Um, you know, you can suppose that this is going to be a better animal, but you don't know until you've really tracked them. You know exactly what they're doing. So um, that's uh, one of the, the studies that I've been interested in. And we've been very lucky as uh, ranchers on this place that um, to rub shoulders daily with these researchers. So it isn't this separation of the cowboy and the scientists. We are working hand in hand. And we are telling them, this is what, we've, this is what I've seen in the 56 years I've been here. These are the changes I've seen. These are the grasses that I've seen changes. This is the water I've seen, you know, not as much of. And so then they can then tell us, okay, this is what we're finding. And so this exchange of ideas is, I think, very valuable on both sides. Heidi, I'm extremely, I'm just, uh, I'm stunned. Uh, this is a wonderful perspective, isn't it? Because this could have gone a lot of different directions. I opened this podcast by noting our insane views out this window from your dining room table instead of noting that there's a golf course out there, which it could have been. This could have been a golf course. That's exactly right. <clears throat> the whole mission, I guess, of my lifespan here 
has been to see that this landscape does not end up that way. And by partnering with the Nature Conservancy, having them buy the land, um, that has been the first step. But, you know, it never, there is never a real, uh, I feel absolutely safe that we will never see condominiums or golf courses. But there is also other issues of protection that we need to address. And, um, you know, it's multiple use. When they were creating the Bears Ears Monument, we had asked that this be a conservation area, not a recreation area, so that the research would have an easier time. Um, but that didn't happen. We do have a recreation. And it is uh, imp very... Um, very hard because there are people coming from all over the world and to climb and for all of us to recognize and respect one another and not think that our special use of the land is the priority um, and it's easy for me to think that I am the priority this place is it's the landscape that's the priority it isn't climbing it isn't cattle raising it isn't jeeping, it isn't making um, marathons. The primary goal in my heart for this area is preserving this landscape. And wow. that means in some way we have to figure out how we're going to have um, allow people to climb, allow recreation to happen, and not end up with a um, parking lot every 10 feet and a toilet. Um, and what, what does that mean? Does that mean maybe in some time in the future we decide that there should be permits here? I have permits. I'm told how many cattle I can have. I'm told I can take on the forest at this time and off the forest. And um, the same way with BLM land. Should that happen, start happening, start being a part of the conversation about how many climbers can we really facilitate without damage? How many ATVs can we facilitate? How many campers? And so that conversation with all users, um, none of us have the... Um, upper hand or the priority here. We should all be working together to manage this landscape. Again, Heidi, I'm stunned. I, uh, be, be, folks, be sure to go to the written show notes. I'll have links to the Nature Conservancy website and a few photos in there. If you don't mind, I'll just read from the Nature Conservancy's mission statement of the Canyonlands Research Center is to facilitate research education and collaboration for understanding the interactive effects of land use and climate and developing management solutions that meet human needs while maintaining ecological viability on the Colorado Plateau. Actually, I like the way you said it better. <laughs> but 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 seriously, I'm just stunned because this could have gone a lot of different directions. And you told me earlier that it took four years to put this deal together. It's wow. There's some conflicting interests. There's some money involved. But your dedication to the landscape, not you, not your use, not anyone's use. Instead of taking a side, you took the side of the place. 
right? That's what you did. I think that's just amazing. That's probably why it went through. That's probably why it happened. Well, I think that there was a lot of work on a lot of sides. Um, and I think the priority now, um, at least my goal in now that I'm almost 80, um, is the years I have left and the years since I was 20 have been devoted to this area and this place. And I will continue working with um, whoever I can and whatever I can do to make sure that we are successful in keeping this place the beautiful area that it is. Wow. Well, you've been recognized in certain circles, and I hope the listeners, who are many of whom are recreational people, really appreciate the background and the context here and see their activities within the greater scope of this place and are inspired by you as I am that it's about the place. It's not about their thing. So instead of arguing and advocating for my little slice of the pie, you're advocating for the pie, so to speak, if you don't mind my analogy. And you've been recognized besides, uh, you know, the city slickers, the movie and various TV commercials. Heck, Sally Jewell has come here a number of times. She was the Secretary of Interior under President Obama. They pulled her out of REI. She was the president of REI. And you told me she was just here a couple weeks ago just to spend time, not on a political mission, but just to hang out. Is that correct? That's right. And, you know, Sally Jewell is um, a person with an eye for landscapes and a person who dedicated those years as Secretary of the Interior um, preserving landscapes. And so I think her mission in life is similar to mine, um, the preservation of landscapes. Wow. That's, that was a, a friend in a high place. And then we had a change in presidential administrations, and Ryan Zinke became Secretary of the Interior. He had a different eye, and he came here. And, you know, you don't really like a lot of press, to put it moderately. <laughs> so thank you again for talking with me. But I think uh, you and... Uh, and Secretary Zinke kind of had a little trying to figure out how to work that. That's right. I mean, I I feel that um, while Sally Jewell and Deb Holland are more down my view of how things should go in the Interior Department, um, while Mr. Zinke's was different, um, I do feel like um, to be able to at least explain to the someone with a different viewpoint, um, what, what my view is, and have them listen. Uh, whether they accept it or not is another, another issue. But um, so while Mr. Zinke was, um, had a different, far different viewpoint than I have, um, it was imperative to have a conversation and to at least exchange ideas now. Did I change his mind? Did I change your view? Uh, probably not, but at least he heard that view. And then you mentioned Secretary Haland, who when uh, President Biden uh, nominated Deborah Haland, and she is a registered member of the Laguna Pueblo. She is a 35th <laughs> generation 
New Mexico, 35th generation. I mean, it's like, wow. It brought tears to my eyes. And Secretary of the Interior is a huge responsibility. They, they, they manage everything that someone else doesn't. So that, that was just incredible when they appointed her. And she almost came here, but didn't quite. No, we uh, had a hope that she might make this visit, but there were some difficulties we couldn't. So I met and um, was able to express some viewpoints with her in, um, in planning Utah. So um, I, I am just so excited that she is our new Secretary of the Interior, and I have high expectations, and I think she's going to exceed all of them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the one thing that was the most exciting thing, frankly, for me about the Bears Ears was that it was uh, a Native American coalition that got the Bears Ears named. And, you know, how many wins have they had since we invaded their properties, <laughs> and not very many. And so to have them um, have this uh, desire and to spearhead this project was, to me, the most exciting part about it. And their win, while they didn't get the $1.9 million, uh, and that may happen now, it may be expanded, but I, I just repeat again how thrilled I was that they had a win. Well, uh, there's a big thing about immigration, of course. The previous president made it one of his little touch points to make people afraid of immigration. And compared with Secretary Haland, we're all immigrants. Everyone's an immigrant. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's, it's nice that she's in charge of that now. We're going to talk a minute in a minute about Bear's Ears because you have, you know, again, like with everything else, you're on the ground floor. You know things other people do not know. But you said something a few minutes ago, which I thought was kind of important. Like what happens now in terms of recreation? It's very interesting because compared with you know, coal strip mining, it's, it's very light on the landscape, but to say it has no impact would not quite be the case. And so we have this interesting situation now that this has become a famous area and they appointed, they, uh, Obama made it a national monument two weeks before he left office and then nothing was done except that designation. So. It's kind of chaotic now, isn't it? It is, and the unfortunate situation where he uh, tried to work with um, Utah's state representatives to, uh, or congressmen to come to a compromise. And um, so he was kind of, while he was waiting for that process, so he had only two weeks left. So getting the budgeting and the administration and everything organized for this new monument um, has left, been left flat. And so when um, attending a meeting with um, Deb Holland, one of the main issues that every person brought up was we need funding for this area and we need um, direction because as it is now, for instance, on Indian Creek, there's any place you want to camp, you can camp. And so the landscape is just being um, destroyed slowly. And so we need more guidance. 
and more direction, more law enforcement, and we are seeing some of our ancient rock art being destroyed, and um, no one wants this. And I, you know, I often think that um, if people really were educated, I don't think these people that pull off in their big RVs and whatnot even recognize what they're destroying. And um, if they were properly educated, I think, and we had the funding to do all this, I think it would be a bit different story here. And I worry that, um, I do not worry that Deb Holland is looking at this and will address it as soon as she can. But she's got a lot on her plate. <laughs> she's got a, right. It just snowed three feet on Deb Hagelund. Um, interesting. I like what you said about, um, well, I'll give you a little bit of perspective here because you, right now we're looking across the street at world-famous climbing routes. People come from all over the world. There's listed 500 and, uh, no, I'm sorry, 1,543 listed climbing routes in Indian Creek up from zero 20 years ago. And the climbers generally are very careful about this, generally, but as individuals, not so much. So it's this interesting mix I'm uh, reading from the Access Fund, which is a, you know, a climbing advocacy organization. From their email, it came out May 17th. And number one in this email is, take the Indian Creek Climber Survey. You know, they're surveying the people to gauge visitation. And then number three, climb respectfully on sacred land. They have an entire webinar for an in-depth discussion with indigenous climbers and thought leaders about respecting culture and protecting uh, cultural sites. So officially, they're very good. They're all over this, but then there's bad apples. And so somehow we've got, you know, we, we don't like this. Uh, I don't, cattle ranchers really don't like it. Climbers are kind of, but the word permitting and regulation and organization has to come into the conversation. That's right. I mean, with, um, with any user groups, we need to, first of all, respect one another and also look at what we are actually doing on the landscape. For instance, um, when, we, when I first came in the 60s, we had a permit here for 1,400 head. Our permit now is for 475 head. And so uh, we've made adjustments through the years, and we needed to. And I'm sure we'll be making more adjustments. And um, climbers need to look at their numbers. ATV people need to look at their numbers. Um, and just in general, each user group, uh, instead of our pointing fingers at one another and saying, well, look what they're doing, we need to figure out what we can do to, I mean, are there really enough parking areas? I mean, are we going to overuse the climbing areas to where the BLM figures they have to have more and more parking lots, more and more toilets, to f and, and then what do we end up with? Then have we lost, there's some parks right now that if you go in, 
you are bumper to shoulder to shoulder, bumper to bumper with other people. How are you seeing that landscape? You are not. And I think until national parks that are suddenly so popular, they're going to have to figure out a way, just like I had to lower my herd each year, that they have to lower that herd of people. Wow, that's some analogy, Heidi. That's very well done. I mean, if a, if a cattle rancher <laughs> can live within the permit system to manage the land appropriately, recreationalists who, generally speaking, have an environmental perspective, they should be able to do the same thing. I, that's a very good analogy. If cattle people can do it, we can do it. Right, folks? And indeed, you made an interesting uh, analogy with me yesterday about river rafting, didn't you? Well, yes, and um, years ago when um, the river people, guides, were faced with the government or the, or the regulation, you will have to have a permit to get on the river. Well, they did not like that one bit. And I don't think any cattle person likes being told, well, you can run fewer cattle because that's less money, or any climber saying you can't climb here. But the river people found out that it really saved their business. Because can you imagine if the number of people that visited a national park were on the river at one time, you'd be hitting each other in the eye with oars. <laughs> and if I had maybe the number of cattle that I wanted to, um, you know, make a lot of money, that would be ridiculous. And uh, for climbers not to look at their situation or ATV, we all need to be responsible. Um, and the access fund is trying. I mean, I applaud them for what they're doing. But we all need to be realistic about the capacity of a landscape to remain beautiful and enjoyable for all if we don't start considering permits. Okay. Well, you heard it from a uh, cattle person who moved here 56 years ago. And that's a credible source if there ever was one. And here's an example, of course, uh, up near, I think it was near Moab, I think it was about two weeks ago, someone bolted, which is a way of installing a climbing anchor that's not natural. They actually drill a hole in the rock and insert a bolt so they can protect their climb. Over the top, which is a true story, by the way, I'm not making this up. This isn't just on social media. Over an an ancient Anasazi petroglyph. And then he posted it on social media. Now, this, of course, is just an outrage, but the story is very interesting because then other climbers saw this and said, whoa, what did you do? You're out of your mind. This guy was just slammed. So it wasn't like they're going, oh, cool, dude. No, he, he got major heat. And indeed, the story continued in that he said he didn't know what it was, which to you and I is like, Wow, really? <laughs> What'd you think that was? But that's what he claimed. And he actually came to Moab, walked in in person, said, I'm sorry, I did that. I own my mistake. So it's an interesting story. It is, and I applaud him for, for reporting himself. But at the same time, it's never going to replace that rock art. Right. And so education now, not five years from now, not one month from now, not right now. In fact, I was in an area on Indian Creek yesterday that has petroglyphs, beautiful area. I look up and what do I see? Two shiny new 
bolts. They'd never been there before. This is a, a wall that um, all for a quarter of a mile has petroglyphs, and suddenly there's two bolts, shiny. And I think, you know, you can't continue every day to add new climbs. I mean, you just can't. Um, I can't uh, think about every day adding a new cow either. Um, and so we really need, I mean, I know that um, a lot of people hate cattle people, and so, and it isn't a matter of my disliking climbers. That is not the point, and I do not dislike climbers. What I want for them is to have regulations like I have regulations, and all of us should welcome that if it's going to preserve this land. It's for the greater good. It's not just <clears throat> preserving the land, which, like you said, is literally irreplaceable. I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do, but the ancient rock art, that's it. They don't make any more of that. And as you and I and other people have known, noted, there's a lot of it. You know, people who are not familiar with the area might think, okay, Mesa Verde National Park, newspaper rock up Indian Creek, I would say, what do you think? Within 20 miles of where we're sitting right now, there's probably 2,000 examples of ancient rock art almost walking distance from right here. That's right. And um, I just hate to see, especially this particular area where um, there's also dinosaur tracks, that it would become a climbing wall. I think that there's enough climbs without every day making a new one. Mm -hmm. And we need to respect, and, and it's within five feet of rock art. Um, and it's time that there's regulations. If It's nice when you can govern yourself, but when that doesn't happen, then I think it's time for the agencies to step in and help out. Right. It's great to govern yourself. The Access Fund, the Indian Creek Climbers Coalition, they're, they're, they agree with you. They're trying to do it. But at some point, you have to step in and say, this is the rule. Sorry about that. It's kind of like stopping at a red light. It's for the greater good. <laughs> it's a, you could say stopping at red lights is infringing upon your personal freedom. But it's also keeping you from killing someone or being killed. So it's it's a helpful little regulation to have. You know, one other thing I'd like to bring up is tourism. You know, in the past, everyone has always thought tourism was the saving grace for the economies of an area. And in some ways it is. But it is um, just as big um, an extractive industry uh, as oil and gas, as cattle industry with uh, I mean and we need to recognize that that it isn't an industry without um, causing some difficulty and so uh, it isn't pristine no industry is and so it is time that we looked at this tourist industry with a jaundice eye just like we look at everything else mm -hmm. Good point. Uh, very interesting. The term being used now is industrial tourism, where it's not, uh, you know, ma and pa 
out there in their sedan. Now it's it's commercial. It's 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 big time. There's uh, serious money, and like you said, Moab, of course, is, is the best example of this. Uranium went bust, fortunately, in my opinion, and um, recreation came on. Mountain biking, Moab became the mountain bike capital of the world. And so, wow, great, people can make a living. But at the same time, it's like, whoa, you know, let's, uh, <laughs> let, let's, let's put some parameters on this. So as you said, people can continue to enjoy the experience and the landscape doesn't suffer too much. So it's a very interesting balancing act, isn't it? Yes, and you know, and all of life is becoming more and more a balancing act. And so the more we're aware of our impact that could push this balance the wrong way, the better off we'll be. So now this brings us right up to what you've said a few times already, bear's ears. Whoa, this is, people all over the world have heard of bear's ears. Now it's an icon, it's a battleground, it's a symbolic battleground in that if I may name names, you know, the Trump era greatly reduced it. And the some conservation groups and recreational groups like Patagonia and so forth rose up saying, yes, bear's ears, we must have bear's ears. But there's a lot going on behind this. In a way, it's not, yay, you know, win, lose. There's subtleties to this. 1.9 is big. National monument status means, hey, everyone, let's go there. But if you know this place, it's like, wow, you're not going to charge entrance fees at the gate. You know, this isn't like arches where they can do this really tightly managed structure where, by the way, they close the gate. They close the park every day about 9 a.m. now because it's at capacity. They did an interesting thing, which isn't in the news. You can actually ride your bike into arches any time of the day for free. Their bike path bypasses the entrance station, even as they're turning away everyone else, by the way. So you can't do that here. 1.9 million acres. So what are you going to do? How do we manage? What is, what, sorry, I'm kind of stammering here because it's such a big question. What, in your mind, does Bears Ears look like? Well, that, and when I talk about protections, I mean, it's very difficult because of the, the scope and the size and the distance of all these areas. Um, and so I, when I look at this, I say, well, I mean, you can have, you can put a lot of money into law enforcement, but maybe more money should be spent on education and willing. And the interesting thing about the Bears Ears is Cedar Mesa, that to me was in the beginning, the goal, not just the Bears Ears itself, uh, that was iconic place, but uh, Cedar Mesa. I mean, it has more um, ancient dwellings per square foot than any place in this county, and yet it wasn't in the monument. Uh, and so, you know, deciding the size, um, I mean, we could go on and on. The one thing that I was disappointed when the monument was uh, one of them was that there wasn't more wilderness. Um, there are some areas, a lot of areas, that if it had wilderness status, that would not promote roads and vehicles and, um, you know, give more variety um, 
to the hiker and the person that wants to really be out in nature, I would have liked to have seen at least some areas um, get wilderness. In fact, a lot of these wilderness study areas that have been study areas forever, um, isn't it time they became wilderness? So these are the questions, and I'm certainly not one to think I have all the answers. I certainly do not. Um, and, um, but I think there are answers. I think that we can have committees and people um, studying this and looking at it, um, just like we're looking at doing research on climate change. We should be doing research on what is the real capacity for tourism. Uh, and for people coming, and what would end up with all of us feeling like we had really seen nature and felt nature and had that spirit in our heart before we um, get so, we're bumper to bumper going into the park and we're angry as hell before we get there, <laughs> you know. Um, so anyway, these are, I could go on and on, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> Well... Uh, Heidi, I hope you definitely do go on and on because your voice is important. And indeed, you have sat on a number of boards. You've consulted on the Bears Ears situation, the Bears Ears National Monument. And so I'm gathering that you think National Monument status of some kind, some kind of protection is important. You maybe would like to see wilderness designation for some of it instead of National Monument status? Right, and conservation areas. I, I was very disappointed that Indian Creek didn't have some conservation area. But um, besides Indian Creek, there's other areas that would, that would suit conservation areas. Um, but uh, it's for, and I like it when there's a coalition of people that have different interests. And I may think that everything should be, the pie should be all mine. Um, which will never work. So we need to have coalitions where uh, we can discuss and figure out, um, as a community, as a group of people, what do we really want our public lands in the end to be? What do we want it to give us? What is, um, do we want it to be some, um, I guess for me it's this bare landscape. Um, that is unmarred by structures and um, maybe big parking lots, that we can truly feel and see nature. Um, to lose that, that is losing something. Wow, well, it takes my breath away there, Heidi. So I appreciate that you have a broad view, an inclusionary view. Specifically, I have to ask you about the indigenous input, because that's something we've always missed dramatically here. You've described, for example, in effect, Grand Canyon National Park, Rocky Mountain National Park, where it's, wow, I mean, it's, it's full-on bumper-to-bumper Yosemite Valley. It's, it's commercial. Of course, that goes back quite a ways. So Biden and Secretary Haland, they're going to look at this again. This is coming up. Bears Ears is Something's going to happen here in the next few years. And personally, my personal opinion is I would like to see more indigenous input here because, I mean, that's, this is, it's, you talk about the landscape, they talk about sacredness. Uh -huh. That's their perspective. It's not just commercial. It's not just recreation. It's not just the landscape. It's a sacred aspect of the land, which is 
that's a heck of a perspective to have too. So do you see some of the local indigenous people having greater input coming up? I think their perspective is primary number one. And I think their feeling for the sacredness, as you say, is something that uh, we all feel, but we have probably not been in touch with um, as they are. And to have their input should be, as far as I'm concerned, number one in this area. I mean, after all, they were, like you say, generation after generation. We can say, oh, we're fifth generation, which is Zippo. That means nothing. That means nothing. And um, to have them have a strong, strong say and uh, influence on what happens, I think is number one important. Heidi, this has been educational and inspirational. Thank you for sharing so much of your wisdom with us. I really appreciate you. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed visiting with you.